Thank you. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter number 20. We're in our 14th study in this series, Things to Come. It's really been uh, fascinating how the Lord has used it to speak to hearts. We've had people come to church as a result. These are being uploaded into podcasts and uh, being listened to. So if you missed one or you want to re-listen to one, uh, that information, it's all online, which is a rather scary thing uh, for me, but uh, hopefully the Lord will use it. So we're coming to uh, what transpires following the great white throne judgment. So what has preceded this? So let's just sort of walk a timeline. Here we are, 2020, and we don't know when the next event's going to take place. It seems sooner rather than later, and in a very practical way, it's sooner than it's ever been before. But at some point in time, the trumpet's going to sound, and uh, the Lord will shout, the angel of the Lord will shout, and the dead in Christ will rise and the believers who are alive, and this is how I just soon go to heaven, will be caught up together with him, and so shall we ever be the Lord. It's called the rapture of the church. So the word isn't in the Bible. The concept is, and that's the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. And immediately, believers will all be with the Lord in heaven, and a couple of events will take place. Uh, one will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ will come first, where we're not judged for our sin, we're judged as to what our life was following our salvation till it ended. Was it worthwhile for God's kingdom or worthless? Was it live selfishly or with a God focus uh, pleasing the Lord? So there'll be the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. No longer will we have a memorial table with an empty spot representing the Lord, but we'll be with him. Now, I don't know what we're going to eat. We could debate that forever, but whatever it is, we will be with the Lord. While that is going on for believers, on earth will be seven years of the great tribulation. And it's divided into two three-and-a-half-year segments. Some call the first three-and-a-half years not so bad, and the second three-and-a-half very bad. But if you read the book of the Revelation, which the bulk of the book of the Revelation is about the tribulation, it's all bad. In fact, just this week, sadly, we dropped the support of a missionary who changed his position to a pre-wrath rapture position. And uh, I, as soon as I'm, I appreciate his ethics to tell me that's a position he took, I responded in kind saying, no longer can we support you financially. You know, doctrine's important. I believe doctrine's important. And I'm not going to support somebody who doesn't teach what we teach. But anyway, that's a whole other issue. I'm just saying I'm serious about it. So at the end of the seven years, the Lord will come back to this earth and we will come with him. And there will be a massive battle, the battle of Armageddon. At that time, Satan will be bound. The, uh, the prophet, false prophet will be bound. The beast will be bound. And they'll be cast for a thousand years uh, into the lake of fire. And then God will establish, the Lord Jesus will establish a thousand year millennial reign. Now, about half of the world's population died during the seven years of the tribulation. But in that thousand years, though only believers enter into it, 
there will be a generation after generation after generation after generation. The earth will be more than repopulated and not all of those people born will be saved. And so there, there will be some issues going on there, but we come to the end of the thousand years. The Bible says Satan is loosed for a brief season. We don't know how long that brief season is. We just know he's going to be loosed for a brief season to deceive the nations is what the Bible says. But at the end of that, then Satan is uh, judged and cast into hell and the great white throne judgment, which we studied last week, where only unbelievers are judged. You say, well, if they're all unbelievers, they're all going to eternal damnation. Yes, but the degree of that damnation is determined at that judgment. And then the Bible talks about them going to this awful place. And so tonight, we're going to look at the reality of hell. Many years ago, I read a book on this topic just for the theology of eternal judgment. The writer was quoting another theologian who said, hell disappeared and no one noticed. In other words, he wasn't being cute. He wasn't being tongue in cheek. What he's saying is nobody talks about it. Many well-known preachers, quote unquote, of the gospel as they age, start denying the eternality of judgment of hell. And this is just my opinion for what it's worth. And you can know what you can do with my opinion. There's a trash can by the door on your way out. But my opinion is, as I thought about why would a man who's preached the gospel, preached the reality of hell judgment, why would he begin denying that at the end of his life and the only thing that makes sense to me is he knows people who are not saved and he can't comprehend the fact that they're going to be in God's in that judgment forever. I don't know if that's a reason. But some very sound preachers of the God, they're not fundamentalists, uh, as I would classify myself, but I, I've read their books, I've studied their writings, I've been encouraged, I've been challenged. Why would they change at the end? It's, a, it's food for thought. So notice Revelation chapter 20. I'll begin reading in verse number 10. The Bible says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Skip down to chapter 21, verse 8. 
but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. This is what this is talking about. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the reality of eternal punishment. Their writings say, quote, who is responsible for this God-demeaning doctrine of a hell of torment? The promulgator is Satan. His purpose is introducing it, in introducing it, has been to frighten the people away from studying the Bible and to make them hate God, end of quote. That's from their writings. Ellen G. White, the prophetess of Seventh-day Adventists, which they believe in annihilation, not in eternal judgment, wrote, quote, The prince of darkness working through his agents represents God as a revengeful tyrant, declaring that he plunges into hell all those who do not please him and causes them ever to feel his wrath. And that while they suffer unutterable anguish and writhe in the eternal flames, their creator looks down upon them with satisfaction. Folks, in both of those statements, which are both incorrect, by the way, that's based on a wrong view of God. God is holy. And because God is holy, his wrath is the expression of his holiness against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But God is consistently God. He does not change. And so his holiness demands a wrath uh, on man's sin when man doesn't receive the free gift of salvation in Christ provided for them. So let's look at this topic of hell. What are some of the Bible terms? Well, there are basically three words used to, uh, that are uh, translated hell in our King James Bible. The first one is the word sheol. Sheol, this is a Hebrew word translated hell in the Old Testament. And it really has two usages or two meanings. It was used to describe the place where the bodies of the dead are laid. So it's used to describe the grave, okay? Sheol, the place where the body was placed. Psalm 6, verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? That's the word sheol. But its most commonly, uh, common usage was to mean the place where once someone died, their spirit went, the unsaved spirit of the dead. Or, or it, it could be not just unsaved, it could be either way. Uh, when, when Jacob was told about Joseph, when the brothers conspired and brought back the coat of many colors with the blood on it and torn up, uh, Jacob said in Genesis 37, 5, he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. That's that same word, Sheol. That's a Hebrew word. The second word is the word Hades. That's a Greek word. It is translated hell in our New Testament. 
And it was used to describe a place of punishment for the unsaved. The word basically means unseen. Unseen, meaning that uh, it's not visible to the living. It's only translated grave one time in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 55, where Paul was talking and he said, O grave, where is thy victory? That's the only time it's, just, it's used to uh, speak of the grave. Every other time it's used to speak of hell. And the third word is the word Gehenna. Gehenna. This is also a Greek word translated hell at least nine times in our New Testament. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What the Lord is saying there, you know, you're fearful of physical harm. What about your soul? Where is it going to spend eternity? That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, the word Gehenna comes from a root from the Valley of Hinnom. By the way, I saw one picture of Harry and Peggy uh, there in Israel, they were in the Caesarea Maritima, one of the first stops you take, uh, where Paul was actually taken in Acts when the mob was going to kill him, when the plot was men said they weren't going to eat until they killed him, and, and word got to Paul, and Paul told the magistrate, and 200 men took him up to Caesarea Maritima, and uh, so I saw them in that amphitheater there, and it looked like they were having a good time, best I could tell. But they will one day uh, in about a week from now, they'll be in the city of, of Jerusalem and they'll walk through or by the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom separates the city of Jerusalem with the Mount of Olives. It was literally the garbage dump of first century. And uh, a dog died in the street. They dragged the carcass out there. And it, that, that was the image where the Lord said, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It was speaking of the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And that was a picture the Lord was presenting regarding uh, what hell is like. So these are the three words translated hell in our Bible. But more specifically, what did Jesus say? What did he teach about this place called hell? Well, first of all, he said it's a real place. It is a real place. Remember uh, that in Matthew 24, verse 51, but uh, I'm going to reference Luke 16, 28. When the rich man died and in hell lift up his eyes being in torment, he got the conversation going with Abraham on, on the other side of the great gulf. Abraham's in the, in the paradise side. He's in the torment side. And he said... I have five brethren that he may testify unto them lest they also come into this place of torment. It's not fictional. It's not imaginary. It is a real place. Secondly, he said it is a place to be avoided at all costs. Remember Matthew 5, he said, if your hand offend thee, cut it off. Better to go into hell without, uh, into heaven without one hand than to condemn your soul. If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. Now that's, that's rather gruesome. That's, that's rather 
uh, amazing, but he was saying, don't risk eternity of judgment. It's a place to be avoided at all costs. Thirdly, he said, it's a place where you'll be separated from him. Matthew 7, 23. Remember, they'll come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things? Verse 23, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What makes heaven heaven is the Lord's going to be there. And what makes hell hell is the fact that he won't be. That's, that's, a, that's a very profound thought. Depart from me. Depart from me. Number four, the Bible says in hell's darkness, the Lord said it is a place where the only sound will be weeping and gnashing of teeth of the condemned. Matthew 8, 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, you can endure pain when you know there's an end to it. In fact, I know people, I think they're insane, but they'd go to the dentist and say, I don't want any Novocaine. It won't last long. I don't like that feeling of being numb. Me? Knock me out dead cold. I don't, I don't want to know anything. Wake me up tomorrow, you know. I never have enjoyed pain. I never have volunteered for pain, you know. I'm a wimp. But, but to know that there's no end to it. It's not just the intensity of it, which is going to be absolutely awful, but it's the eternality of it. No end. We'll say more about that in a moment. Jesus said hell is far worse than physical death. I already read it, Matthew 10, 28. Fear, fear not them that kill the body, but fear those that are able to kill the body and the soul. And lastly, in the, in the, the writings of Jesus, the quotes of Jesus, hell contains, will contain punishments that vary in severity and yet are all deserved. I've said there's going to be degrees of punishment in hell. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 22. Says, but I say unto you, it, will be, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou Capernaum which art exalted unto heaven shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. It's not saying the inhabitants of Sodom will not face eternal judgment. It's saying their judgment will be less than you because of your rejection of the truth. So I, I sort of sped through that a little bit because of time, but I, this final section is, let's look specifically at how the Bible describes this place 
called hell. There in Revelation 20, verse number 10, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let these descriptions sort of weigh on your heart. It is a place of everlasting punishment. Matthew 25, 46 says everlasting punishment. Now, I'm not trying to be silly, but you look up the word everlasting and it means without end, never ceasing. It's also translated eternal. And as I said a few weeks ago, for those who want to argue that hell uh, judgment is not eternal, then the same word is used to describe eternal life. So if judgment is not eternal, life is not eternal, you've got to be consistent in your interpretation of scripture. It's the same word. It is a place of unending judgment. Jesus said it's worse than physical death which proves that it's not, it's not annihilation, but it is eternal torment. Jesus said about Judas, it would have been better if he had never been born, which would make no sense if judgment was annihilation, not eternal judgment. So it is a place of everlasting judgment. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 and following, if you want a few other references, Revelation 14, 10 and 11, and Revelation 19 here, verse number 20, and the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. These both, both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone it is a place of judgment punishment God's wrath that does not end secondly it is called a place of fire fire Matthew 13 42 and verse 50 and shall cast them into a furnace of fire there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth I mean, if you've ever even gotten a little burn in cooking, you know, touching a pan, you know, the irritation and the pain of that. We're very well acquainted with our church member, Kim Bowie, and the, and the pain of the, the napalm and that burning and the effects of that. Mark 9 says that it's a fire that will not be quenched. Uh, Revelation 14. Notice down in verse Number 10, in the middle of the verse, it says, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. It is a word of, of exactly what you think of when you think of fire and brimstone. If you've ever watched video of the, the lava flowing out of a volcano, and you can just see the radiant heat from that. 
that, in my mind, that's how I visualize the awful judgment of hell. It is a place of fire. Thirdly, it's a place of banishment from the presence of the Lord. Often when I'm witnessing to someone and express to them that because of their sin, they've come short of the glory of God. So I, I always try and tell them what makes heaven heaven is the fact that God is there. But what makes hell hell is the fact that God is not there. To never, have, you know, we don't even understand that as believers because we have the constant presence of God with us in the, in the Holy Spirit. And the peace he gives us, the encouragement he gives us, just the illumination, all constantly ministering to us, by the way, which is a mark of God's love for us, to be banished from the presence of anything good for all eternity is, a, is an awful thought. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Banished from the presence of the Lord. The idea of that, that word is uh, it brings their destruction or their ruin. The wages of sin is death. It's a place, number four, of torment. That's not trying to sanitize what's going on. The word torment means torture, acute pain. And you know, there's some people that have endured unbelievable pain in their human life. But even that, if I understand scripture correctly, does not measure to what the pain of the torment of hell will be. And it's for all eternity, no relief ever. You know, back in the medieval days, the rack. Uh, one time we went through a castle in Hungary. I was preaching for a missionary and they took us to his castle. And, and you know, in Europe, they have a different view of uh, what, you know, what you need to learn. And there was a whole bottom floor that was uh, given to describe and to graphically portray how they would get people to tell the truth. All the instruments of punishment that they would use, of torture. It was, a, it was a gripping place. But even that does not measure to the rich man being in hell, lifting up his eyes. What's the first thing it says about him? Being in torments. Revelation 20 verse 10 says the same thing, shall be tormented day and night. I didn't put these in the slides, but there are at least four torments the Bible describes. There is the torment of the worms. Their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh, Isaiah said. Now, some have suggested that's, that's their memory, never being able to get away from their memory. It may be, maybe it is a symbolic but the Bible talks about the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. There's a torment of darkness. It's repeatedly called outer darkness. Now, I, in our house, if the room is dark, nobody's in it. 
You know, we, we don't sit in the darkness. We like the light. There's something about our human nature. We genuinely don't like to remain in dark. I mean, obviously, I like a dark room when I sleep. I can enjoy going out on a dark summer night and look up at the sky and enjoy the stars. But to never be able to see anything. One time we were in Carlsbad Caverns and we got way deep into the New Mexico mountains there where the caverns are and we were seated there and the, the uh, uh, whatever they call him, forest ranger, whatever he is, the guide, he said, now I don't want anybody to move now, I'm going to turn off the lights. He turned off the lights. He said, now let your eyes adjust a little bit. And I don't know how long he waited. He said, now put your hand in front of your face. And I am not kidding you, we were so removed from any light at all, I could not, my eyes never did adjust. There was no light, zero. I I promise you at that point in time, if I heard him running down the cave, I I would not have been a happy guy. (laughs) And then he lit just one match. And it was amazing how much that, uh, what a difference that made. Imagine being in a darkness where you can never get your orientation. That's what would happen. You would lose all sense of what's up, what's down, what's right, what's left. The torture of darkness. Jude, verse 13, calls it the blackness of darkness forever. There's a torture, number three, of consciousness. Notice the rich man was very aware of what was going on. Very needful of one drop of water. Immediately thinking about his unsaved brothers that he didn't want to come to this place. It's not like you're immediately lost in oblivion and have no awareness and no memory and no sensation. And then fourthly, there's the torture of unquenched thirst. Now, I'm not a person who gets thirsty. I can go hours without a drink. My wife is always after me to drink more water, and I tell her I do. It's got just coffee in it, that's all. Uh, I get my water intake that way. But for those of you who are thirsty a lot, imagine the torture of that, never being able to quench that thirst. I visited people in the hospital before and after surgery when they could not have something to drink because of a choking problem and they would give those little swabs to wipe the inside of their mouth just to try and remove that awful feeling of not being able to to get a, a little saliva together. This torture is a very real thing. It's a place of torment. Number five, it's a place without hope of escape. There's something about when you lose hope that all is despairing. But we've already talked about over and over again, eternal, forever and ever, never ending, never ending, never ending, never ending. It's a place of unfulfilled desire. That rich man wanted a drop of water, didn't want it, didn't get it. He wanted Abraham to come to him. Abraham said, there's a great gulf fix. Can't, can't happen. Well, send somebody to my brother. Every request he made was denied. Think about that. 
unfulfilled desires. Unfulfilled. And as we already stated, it's a place of gnashing of teeth. God's been good to me. I've endured very little pain in my lifetime. A few accidents, a few athletic things, you know, you go through and you grit your teeth a little bit, but it eases up over a period of time. Imagine it never easing up. Never. A place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. And it is lastly a place of eternal remorse. I honestly believe, you don't have to agree with this, that's fine, that they're going to remember every opportunity they had to be saved. They're going to think about every time somebody talked to them about Christ. They're going to remember when the Spirit of God tugged at their heart. In a lifetime, a lifetime, an eternity, filled with remorse. So what should be our response? Number one, let's not allow hell to disappear from our own minds and hearts. It's real, folks. And every minute of every day, thankfully there are some people that are saved and going to heaven, but there are a lot more who are perishing and going into hell. And our concern needs to be heightened, not lessened. We can thank God, just like at the tribulation, that has no reference to me. I am secure in Christ. I'm thankful for the salvation I have, but I cannot be selfish I need to do all I can so I can tell others that God brings into my path. I can't reach everyone. I can't talk to 7.8 billion people. But God brings people across my path that I can talk to, that I can give a track to, that I can invite to church, that I can try and reach with the gospel. The book I mentioned at the beginning of the message, it's called The Other Side of the Good News. The title alone is captivating. The good news is all who believe in Jesus Christ, trusting in him with true heart belief, have eternal life and a home in heaven. But there is the other side. What about others? The writer said, quote, man is not spiritually neutral. He is on his way to a most horrific place and needs to be rescued. One who is rapidly approaching a deadly waterfall doesn't need instruction on the joys of outdoor camping. He needs to be warned of imminent danger and rescued from certain death. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. We sing it, but maybe God help us to live it. The eternal reality of hell. Let's pray. Father, it is a rather weighty topic. It's grave. It's heavy. But Lord, I pray that you're, by your Holy Spirit that it would stir in our hearts an understanding that we have a job to do. 
That's why we have a Donuts and Doors and go out into the community. That's why every week we preach the gospel and try and urge people to put their trust in Christ. That's why we give our faith promise offerings to support missionaries, to preach the gospel in other countries and other languages, to other people groups that we cannot personally reach. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not become so social oriented that we forget the reason we're here. If you didn't have a job for us to do after saving us, you'd take us to heaven to help us avoid a lot of heartbreak. But there are people to talk to. There's a gospel to to love and to share. We're so glad this past Sunday we saw two people who were in our service who believed and received Christ and were truly born again. What a joy. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see more. We know we have to do our part, but we can't save anyone. We're glad you do the saving, but help us to be loving people to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, urging people to Jesus, doing all we can, that those that we know, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, those that come across our path, will at least have an opportunity to avoid this awful place. Lord, it's no accident that our young people were in here tonight. We didn't plan the message because they were here. But I pray that you'd stir in their hearts that there are a lot of things that they can do with their life. But few of them have eternal consequence. And that they would choose to surrender their lives to you and to live their life for you. So we love you. We're thankful for salvation. Thank you for heaven. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you and help us to do our part that others can know you. For it's in your name we pray, amen.